always greener in somebody else's lake. You dream about going up there, but that is a big mistake. Just look at the world around you. Welcome everyone to the Book and Film Globe podcast, now being recorded in our brand new recording studio with fancy recording equipment. I am your host, the host man, Neil Pollock the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, and the greatest living American writer. You can find Book and Film Globe at www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV. On this week's show, I'm going to talk to film critic Stephen Garrett, who has recently returned from the Toronto International Film Festival, and he has a great preview of all the artsy films and some of the non-artsy films that will be coming out this fall. But first, I'm going to talk to one of my favorite guests, myself, about the new Little Mermaid, who is black. And that's okay, and that's good, but there are some nuances that I'd like to discuss, and I will discuss them right after this musical interlude. We wouldn't land folks loves to cook Under the sea we have to hook up We got no troubles, life is the bubbles Under the sea Under the sea So Disney released an uninspired, murky-looking trailer for its live-action remake of The Little Mermaid this week and the usual corners of the internet responded The Little Mermaid is black She can't be black, she is white And while it's probably true that Hans Christian Andersen a Danish man who died 150 years ago didn't conceive of his Little Mermaid as black. He also probably didn't conceive of her as having a best friend who was a singing crab. This is Disney we're talking about, now the most inclusive of corporations, so of course Ariel is black now. Halle Bailey, the daughter of Halle Berry and Pearl Bailey, rocks the red hair and the blue tail and can sing. We have a black Annie and a black Macbeth. Now we have a black Little Mermaid. To say it's, quote, not scientific that there's a black mermaid assumes two things, that mermaids are real and that they aren't black. It's like saying there are no black ghosts. Regardless, I'm about as likely to watch the Little Mermaid reboot as I am to watch the Golf Channel, so this doesn't really affect me. I think it's perfectly nice. For those who it does affect, please take your complaints elsewhere. We are in an entertainment era awash in strong black women. And these aren't Ruby Dee-style strong black women who must stand teary-eyed on their porches to hold their families together. We're talking about warriors. We just saw the opening of The Woman King, featuring Viola Davis, leading a phalanx of Dahomey female warriors. In November, the Dora Milaje will rearm in the Black Panther sequel. It's not a modern fantasy or genre show unless black people are kicking all kinds of ass. Hollywood has clearly entered an inclusive era where non-Latinos are no longer going to play Latinos and non-Asians are no longer going to play Asians. No one will be doing blackface on network TV anymore. This is the reality of the entertainment business now. No amount of bleeding from basement men will change that. But this brings a question. If strong black characters are, if not the dominant reality in entertainment now, then at least a dominant reality... At what point is it okay to criticize their performances? For example, Moses Ingram gave one of the worst TV performances of the year as Reva, or third sister, in the recent Obi-Wan Kenobi series. She ruined every scene in which she appeared, making an anticipated show nearly unwatchable. This caused people to say racist things about her online, and for other people to attack people who weren't saying racist things, merely critical things. Racism is not okay, 
but criticism is. She didn't create her the show because she's black. She created it because she was bad. It's racist to say there should be no black people in Star Wars, a completely unintelligible line of thinking. But it's not racist to say Moses Ingram was bad in Obi-Wan Kenobi, particularly not in a Star Wars universe that features Carl Weathers, Billy Dee Williams, and Forrest Whitaker, among other black Hollywood legends. Even more recently, Neil Gaiman's long-awaited adaptation of The Sandman has stirred up all kinds of controversy online for casting black women in multiple roles that were originally not black in the comics. Results were mixed. Lucienne, the librarian of the dreaming, was a white man in the comics. In the show, a black actress named Vivienne Akimapong played her, arguably the show's second lead, and she's quite good. In the comics, Sandman's sister death was a pale-skinned goth chick. The show cast her as a black woman, Kirby Howell Baptiste, who's also quite charming in the half hour in which she appeared. However, the back end of the show featured the story of Rose Walker, a dream vortex, who, in the manner of all British sci-fi, is a magical girl who possesses the key to all reality. In the comics, Rose Walker was, you guessed it, white and blonde. In the show, she's a black actress named Vanessa Samunyai. Semenyai isn't bad in the same way as Moses Ingram, whose performance almost dares you to criticize it. She has charm and wit and warmth. But as the show becomes increasingly about her and less about the magnetic Sandman protagonist, I found myself thinking that she doesn't really have the chops to hold together the narrative. When in scenes with Tom Sturridge and Boyd Holbrook, who played the show's hero and villain respectively, she just cannot compete. By saying Moses Ingram and Vanessa Samunyai are just aren't that good, you're not saying... Black women shouldn't appear in high-profile roles. No one is saying this about Viola Davis or Octavia Spencer or Regina King or Letitia Wright or dozens of other brilliant performances who are leading the greatest generation of black actors ever. For decades, Hollywood forced its shining female lights into fake screen romances with bland white dudes in high-waisted pants. Were we really supposed to believe electric ladies like Judy Garland or Jean Tierney were really pining for these second-rate vaudevillians? But there were so many parts for white men, and not every white man could be Humphrey Bogart or Burt Lancaster. Sometimes they slotted cardboard cutouts into those roles. The same is true in today's entertainment world. For every Teonia Paris, there's a Moses Ingram. Where will Halle Bailey fall on that spectrum? Who knows? But wherever it is, it will have nothing to do with her skin color. The Toronto International Film Festival is in the books, and Stephen Garrett was in Toronto seeing movies, and yes. is here. Yes, you were seeing movies, and it was the first time you've ever seen a movie in a theater, so it must have been really <laughs> exciting for you. <laughs> There's no laptop. I know what to do, but I couldn't pause. I had yeah. to sit there and watch it all the way through. Very exciting. So, and and he's here to talk to us about the offerings from Toronto. It was a, I don't know. From my vantage point, there, there were a lot of movies that I would be interested in seeing. Uh, they seemed like a pretty rich uh, selection this year. So, there was, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, I mean, it was like, oh, these movies actually sound pretty fun, and some of them might actually be popular. Um, so let's start with uh, Glass Onion, which is Ryan Johnson's sequel to the incredibly popular Knives Out, which was sort of his whodunit homage, and this is the, the second 
Knives Out movie, basically. Yeah, yeah. The second one, and um, it's it's a lot of fun. I mean, the first one was, you know, a lot of fun and, and clearly done with a lot of love by somebody who has some reverence for Agatha Christie and also realizes that, of course, the main fun of Agatha Christie is how fun the characters can be as well as how twisty and windy the story can be. So this is that, but almost like doubled down. The characters are more outrageous. The plot twists are more ridiculous. Um, it's really quite funny. And there are a lot of really, uh, really fun misdirects that um, you do not see coming at all. You know, that said at the end, I mean, it is so preposterous that literally by the end, Benoit Blanc, who's Daniel Craig, he literally says, that is so stupid. <laughs> like, he literally, once he solves it, he's like, really? That's dumb. That's just stupid, you know? Mm. So I think it, in a weird way, it's self-owning. So yeah. as to avoid people making fun of it or mocking it, because it, it does a good job of it all by itself. And uh, I mean, I'm not a huge fan of Knives Out. I, 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 found, I found it, you know, pretty, um, pretty derivative. I, I, didn't, I didn't love it, but, but I, what sounds good about this one is the, uh, this sort of uh, Greek island setting. Um, <laughs> I guess so, yeah. Sounds, sounds, well, sounds it's certainly... Yeah, let me tell you, you see that money. I mean, what, Netflix spent, what, $250 million or something to get the the rights? The Knives Out franchise? Or something? Like, it was something insane. So, right, like, uh, like uh, Daniel Craig and Ryan Johnson, the director, writer, director, producer, each are walking away with $100 million, even before they start making movies. Isn't it something like that? Something insane. That's going to um, pay for a lot of Karina Longworth podcasts. <laughs> That's right. He's got all that. Well, they're already swimming in all that podcast money. So what do they need yeah. money for? But um, the uh, no, it's a lot of fun and very clearly a ton of money was spent, overspent on this movie. If you remember, the first one came out, you know, uh, via Lionsgate. And I'm sure the budget was very reasonable and, you know, it was nicely shot. But there weren't a lot of big set pieces. This is like one set piece after the next, you know. To the point where they like they turn around and like the Mona Lisa is literally hanging in somebody's house to just because they're making so much fun of how much money all these people have, you know. Like yeah. there's a sight gag where somebody's playing a um, oh Blackbird, you know the Beatles song on a guitar, and and they're like, yeah, you know, it just sounds so much better. The, you know, this is the guitar that Paul McCartney wrote the song on, and he goes anyway, and then he throws the guitar away. <laughs> well, and and, and the added. Um piece of of meta irony there is that it's incredibly expensive to feature a Beatles song in a movie. <laughs> right, exactly. And the movie's called Glass Onion. So you know it's going to play at some point. Yeah. So, so it's you know, that was you know it's in, Michael Jackson and the Beatles are are very expensive to get into your movies. So they clearly uh, could afford it. Um exactly. so I wanna, a movie that is actually of a lot more interest to me uh, artistically that also makes fun of the super rich is the menu which right. also uh screened at sundance i've been seeing previews for this for months and this looks extremely like an extremely biting satire of so, so. uh of foodie culture and yeah for sure for sure and, you know it's very and of rich foodies it is, and it's uh, it is also very broad. It is very ham-fisted in its uh, assessment of the, you know, of the culture and the pretensions of the people who uh, enjoy that culture. And um, 
it kind of spirals into a certain area of self-loathing that the uh, the restaurateurs and the chefs feel towards the clientele, you know, uh, because they're doing this and they know they're implicit in this sort of industry, which just celebrates, um, you know, uh, not necessarily tasting delicious more than it is bragging about how delicious everything tastes. Right. And, you know, but the, uh, but I don't want you to give away any twists, but there is an element in addition to making fun of food culture, there's a sort of a, squid game vibe to this and there's also it, it kind of has a, a little bit of a sort of a parasite like and i say parasite meaning the uh, the oscar-winning movie of uh, satire of the wealthy and their uh, and their pretensions absolutely right yeah no i mean and if anything i think it feels maybe that's why it feels a little too familiar and maybe not as sharp or as exciting as those movies did no, or because it's like it's, it's not it's not the first through the gate. It's not the first through the gate, and uh, there is something that just feels like low hanging fruit in terms of what they're skewering. Okay, um, but it's beautifully mounted, very handsome production. Like somebody clearly spent a lot of money on this too. Not glass onion money, but you know, still there's no such thing as glass onion money. Uh, <laughs> and, and who would have thought that uh, in these? Um, these times that a Steven Spielberg movie would feel low budget by comparison, but there's right. a new Spielberg movie out that's getting all kinds of Oscar buzz. The, the Fablemans, a uh, very uh, talking about a ham fisted title, uh, but it, it's sort of, <laughs> a, uh, <laughs> it's a, right, uh, which a lot of us at, at Toronto kept saying, like we were Jerry Lewis Fablemans, <laughs> Fablemans. How about it does you, sound why, a little, you know. Why didn't he call them the story mints or the inspiration mints <laughs> or, or the Bildungs Roman mints? Um, but regardless, this is a, a sort of a semi-autobiographical movie about young Steven Spielberg growing up uh, in Phoenix, Arizona, a place that I also grew up, actually. Well, there you um, go. Yeah, and uh, so I, I'm, I am duty-bound to see this, even though I don't really love uh, movies where children stare uh, at movie screens with uh, wonder. <laughs> well, you know, we'll, we'll talk more, uh, I'm sure, when the movie actually comes out. But uh, suffice to say that um, this was a very hotly anticipated film. It, the, the Canadian press made a big noise about how this was Spielberg's debut at the Toronto Film Festival. <clears throat> you know, at the tent. <laughs> as though, as though, Steve, as though they were discovering Steven Spielberg. Exactly, exactly. I mean, you know, it was all tongue in cheek, but um, very clearly, Universal is putting out the film, and um, I, I think strategically, it's very interesting that a major studio with a major director who clearly does not need to play festivals uh, decided to play a festival, not just like a week or two before the movie opens, almost like a pro forma, like you know, splashy premiere. This is two months before the film actually comes out over Thanksgiving. So there's, if the movies, if they weren't feeling really confident about the movie or they felt like it would get bad press, this, they would never risk, you know, uh, damaging the reputation. So they knew going in, they had something special. It truly is. It's done very well. I uh, was not looking forward to this movie in the sense that I think Spielberg is not necessarily at his best when he's at his most mawkish. And here he is talking about how he became a filmmaker. So I just felt personally there were a lot of <clears throat> landmines that he could step on and he could turn in something that's so treacly that it'd be uh, you know unbearable. This is not that. And 
to your point about you know seeing a lot of shots of you know young boys' faces looking up in wonder. This actually looks at film in a way that is more, I wouldn't say nuanced, but it's a lot more fraught and complicated, which I think is why the movie succeeds as well as it does. It's not just this victory lab. This really is him saying, you know, uh, film for me has a lot of uh, pain and trauma and conflict. And there are things that he did not like about himself uh, when he was making movies. And there were things that the movies, when he made them, things that uh, they revealed about the people around him, which also became fraught and, and troubling. So I, I actually, I thought it's pretty admirable what he did. All so right. they know they've got something special. I got to say, they, um, they made sure to feed the press well. Like the, there was a press screening at 8 a.m. and they had two venues opened for the press like they do with big event movies. They make sure that as many press people as possible can see it but they never feed them. And this was like, they sat at a buffet with like cut fruit and muffins and coffee. And they wanted to make sure everybody's well fed. And then this is really impressive. I've never seen this going to Toronto for 20 years. They had a press conference after one of the press screenings. In fact, in, I, I was in an overflow room and they had somebody come in and say, are there any members of the press in this room? We have five seats left in the other venue. There will be a press conference in that venue and only in that venue if you wanna see Spielberg and the cast talking for the movie. They never had that happen at a press screening. So they are working it hard. And I, I, I would imagine it might have something to do with the fact that West Side Story was such a flop at the box office and just did not do as well as they thought it would, you know, either with awards, although Ariana DeBose got her Oscar. But, you know, I, I think this is a full court press. They want Spielberg to get, you know, director nomination, if not award. They, best they, want, him, they want him back. They want, they want Spielberg back. I, um, I'm Spielberg to, wants to be on the top, you know? Yeah, of so. course. Uh, I, I'm going to demand um, muffins and cut fruit when I see this movie. <laughs> at, the, at the Alamo Draft House, inevitably. Exactly. You know, in December, I'm like, oh, if nothing else, I'll just like bring a muffin in my backpack or something. <laughs> um, so I, can, I can recreate the experience of seeing it uh, in, in Toronto. I, I guess I have a quick question about this movie. So it's set in, in Phoenix, right? Is it like in the 50s and 60s? Yeah, it's set, it takes, it, it opens in the mid-50s, they're living in Jersey, and the kid oh. is, you know, like five or six, and then he sees his first movie, and then uh, fast forward to, and then, you know, the dad actually gets a better job in Phoenix, and that's why they moved to Phoenix, and then, you know, a few years have passed, and they're a little bit older, and so it's basically in the 50, 60s at that point, early 60s. Well, I mean, obviously Spielberg is older than me, but not only did I grow up in Phoenix, like, I went, I, I went to school in his school district, I used to see pictures of him in the old yearbooks. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of us. Did they go, did they go to the Cine Capri in this movie to go, go see movies? The Cine I don't Capri, they, you know, they, big art house like where I saw Raiders of the Lost Ark and E.T. You know, oh, that's funny. That's yeah. a deep cut. I did not take note of the name of the theater. They do go to movies when they're there, but, um, that's really funny. I bet you probably it is. The Cine Capri. All right. Speaking of going to the movies, I wanted to talk real quick about Empire of Light which is uh, a movie from Sam Mendes, uh, which another film set in, in a movie house, right? Uh, yeah. And this, this, uh, this is not a coming-of-age story. It's sort of a, a, like a doomed romance. I mean, look, I saw a preview of it last night when I went to the movies. And I was like, this, this looks really pretentious. <laughs> well, it's weird, you know. I, I didn't think it was a bad film, affecting, but, you know, it just feels kind of slight. And the whole idea, it's called Empire of Light, there's a movie house. 
you think it's going to be a movie about movies and movie making and the awe and wonder of going to the theater. And it's not really. I mean, yeah. I guess the best metaphor you could have is that it's, you know, maybe it's, its role thematically is to show this is a place where people escape from the world around them, which is a bit troubled because they talk about racism and there's a black character who gets beat up and, you know, there's a skinhead riot and, you know. So it's like, the, it's like the Purple Rose of Cairo, but not funny. But, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I feel like that's been done. It's a strange, it's just a strange project in that every so often you cut to Toby Jones, who plays a projectionist, and he kind of, you know, waxes poetic about the power of light and darkness. And you're just like, what are you trying to say with this? Oh my what? God, please don't make, it's please don't strange. make me see this. Don't make me see this movie. Yeah, All right. I, I, I do want to see uh, the Banshees of Inishirin. How do you pronounce that? Inishirin? Yeah, more or less. That's how I do. I don't know if that's how Irish people Banshees of Inishirin, as you put it, a brutally funny, tragically sobering portrait of emotional severance and maniacal self-mutilation in 1923 Ireland. That's very specific, but it's also <laughs> it's a film from Martin McDonough, who... Uh, <laughs> right. Who most recently uh, made uh, three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, which was a huge, um, huge hit, surprising hit. And he also uh, made one of my sort of fa- favorite comedy noirs uh, of the last 20 years or so, uh, In Bruges. And the guys from In Bruges, uh, Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson, are the leads in this as well. This looks, I mean, this looks um, heavy, but it looks good. It's uh, it's such a weird concept, and basically, uh, Brendan Gleeson decides one day not to be Colin Farrell's friend, and Colin Farrell is a very sweet guy. He's a little thick-headed, um, and um, and he's tortured by why he would do this, and Brendan Gleeson doesn't really explain, and then kind of half explains, but basically just wants to be left alone, and uh, Colin won't leave him alone, and Brendan Gleeson says, if you don't leave me alone, I will literally start cutting my fingers off, you know. Uh, I mean, I know, so I know how it see feels. What happens in the film. It gets really dark and really surprising. And you're just like, where is this going? And I, there is not a conventionally happy ending. It is, it is a really classic Martin McDonough film. Like he is exploring. Yeah, well, Martin McDonough is, in addition to being a director, he's also a playwright. And uh, you know, Irish, Irish, the Irish make the best plays, as far as I'm concerned, and they have really the best playwrights. And you know, this. This strikes me as as being a, a theater piece in movie form. It is, but it does open up. It doesn't feel like two people talking in a room. I mean, there there it does feel like a movie, like a big movie, and it, it earns its keep, so to speak. It feels more cinematic. It opens up. There's some striking images, um, and most of all, it's really funny. You're you're like laughing hysterically at some things they say, even though it's a strikingly violent film. Um, and the violence is not played for laughs at all, and yet you were laughing because it is just such a... It's a real hat trick to do something that dark and wise and still be bawdy and funny and have a good sense of humor. You know? Well, that sounds good. Uh, it sounds very good, and I will, I will be seeing that for sure. On the other hand, I'm not particularly interested in seeing The Whale, which was a heavily publicized film both at um, Toronto and in Venice, and uh, this is the this is the movie where Brendan Fraser puts on the fat suit uh, to play a six hundred pound shut in. It's uh, Darinovsky, Dar- Darinovsky. That's that's his new name. Darren Aronofsky's uh, latest film. We're just going to call him Darinovsky. It's like it's like he's like Banksy. Um, uh, and uh, this I don't know this 
people love ben, Brendan Fraser in this. He got an 85-hour standing <laughs> ovation or something like that. Um, you were not a huge fan of The Whale. That's right. It's, uh, I mean, it's, it's uh, the ridiculous and the sublime and more ridiculous than sublime. You know, it's, it's um, as compared with Martin McDonough, this is a very theatrical play. In fact, I mean, a, a movie, it was based on a play by uh, Samuel D. Hunter that apparently came out about 10 years ago. And it's about a 600 pound shut-in um, whose life is completely um, wasted. And he is... Um, he's a week away from dying. Basically, a nurse says, you've got a week to live, you know, because you're, you're not taking care of yourself. And so he basically, you see him force-feeding himself. He knows he's going to die, and he's trying to make amends with his teenage daughter, with whom he is estranged, and she's very angry and bitter. He uh, left his wife for a student of his, a man, um, so he came out as gay and uh, has been miserable ever since, the, the, uh, since his lover died. And he died because of some religious zealot, uh, or actually he was religious. I don't know. It's, it's preposterous. The whole thing is so preposterous. I don't want to explain more of the plot, but that's basically the gist of it. And it's not a good movie. He is great in it uh, because there are so many indignities and so many ridiculous things he is asked to do. And yet he gives it somehow uh, a certain amount of dignity that is kind of hard to uh, deny. And also he is Brendan Fraser, so he is naturally charming. And very sweet, and that comes through, and that's very necessary for the character. The Fraser, the Fraser uh, Fraser Rassance is on. Um, a Fraser Rassance. It, it's it's an it's time thing for Brendan Fraser, who I've never thought was really a great actor. Anyway, he does actually show a range that I don't think people have seen in his movies because he's more known for The Mummy and, and Sema Man. But whatever. Good for him. Good for him. I I I might I might um. Just uh, restrict myself to seeing clips. You know, if I if I had uh, a week to live, I would um, I'd probably go to the movies. You know, <laughs> just for just for a change. This is just just to change it up. Oh boy, it's absurd. Just to mix it up. It's absurd. It, yeah, it's very punishing. Well, well, I'm sure we'll talk more when it comes out. But you know, they the A24 is a distributor. They've got you know a really pretty great uh, you know kind of library of movies. They have good taste. Um, I think they saw really unique material that uh, they wanted to support. Aronofsky is very hit or miss. He loves his stories of characters who are destroying themselves, you know, to create, to, to reach some sort of ecstasy, ecstatic bliss. I don't even know. But anyway, uh, it, was, it was a hit and a miss as far as I'm concerned. I think A24 knows that the, there are good qualities in the movie that are worth celebrating, like Brendan Fraser. But it's weird to go to a movie go to a film festival where there's a movie with so much hype and then see the film festival do their best to kind of, uh, I wouldn't say make it impossible to see, but make it very... They, serve, they didn't serve muffins for this one. <laughs> they were not serving muffins for the That whale. would be appropriate. I wish. It would be appropriate to maybe that, give everybody yeah. a bucket of Three Musketeers to eat along with along with the character. All right. So you, you mean, mentioned... Good Lord. Yeah, hilarious, right? <laughs> you mentioned to me that... Um, there were a couple of films pulled from Toronto for political reasons. I'm like, what what could possibly be too politically controversial for a film festival? Uh, well, uh, Toronto is a very... Well, there were two. Okay, so there were two. One was for political reasons, uh, sensitivity reasons, and the other was uh, for uh, legal reasons, for rights reasons. 
The latter was the more recent one of the two is a movie called The People's Joker, which was a, um, a sort of parody uh, reinterpretation of uh, the Marvel Comics, Marvel Comics, DC Comics, Joker. And, with the trans uh, main character, trans right? Transvestite. Yeah, trans main character. And apparently there are other... I did not see it. I actually had a ticket to it. And I said, you know what? I got better things to do. I'm sick of seeing movies at midnight. It was a midnight movie. Um, and then I read later that it was pulled. And it was pulled for rights reasons. So a lot of people are like, wow, this is the only time it's ever going to be shown anywhere. So whether that's a good or bad thing remains to be seen. But I think out chance. of an abundance of caution... Yeah, but the thing is also, why are festivals playing movies that their lawyers haven't vetted? Or, you know, they know better. Like, they, they should have the courage of their convictions and say, no, we're going to play it. We programmed it. You know, sue us. You know what I mean? And maybe they were like, yikes, Warner Discovery is going to sue us, and they have a lot of money. So, no. So, it's kind of a shame to see a, a, an organization like that kind of buckle to legal, you know, reasons uh, to not have artistic expression. The other one is a movie called Sparta by an Austrian filmmaker named Ulrich Seidel. Now, Ulrich Seidel has been around for like 20-plus years, 25 years, 30 years. He's played all the major festivals. He's won major awards in Berlin and Cannes, and uh, he's played in Toronto. He makes documentaries and um, fiction films. He makes a lot of uncomfortable movies about uncomfortable subject matter, like sex tourism of European white European women who go down to Africa to have sex with young black men. You know, um, he tackles some pretty heavy stuff. In this movie, it's a story of a man who is fighting um, pedophilic urges. And there is basically what he does. It's kind of silly. It's, it's an okay movie. Um, I say that because uh, I was able to see it, even though they technically had canceled the film. And this was one of those weird snafus where um, it was on the schedule and then suddenly it was off the schedule. And um, I had written down in my little notebook, you know, oh, I'm going to this movie at this time. And so I showed up and there was nobody in the theater except for, well, there were like 10 people in the theater. And then I wanted to look at the showtime. So I looked online at the festival website to see what the running time was. And suddenly it was gone from the website. So it was a disappeared movie. And then the lights dimmed and they played it. Well, and then days later, um, the press office sent an invite, I mean, an invite, an email to, to me saying, we want to apologize for the fact that this movie was accidentally shown and there will be an audit to find out how it happened. I'm just kind of like, what? This is a movie. And by the way, someone's getting fired, Stephen, and it's I all guess your Someone's fault. getting fired, or I don't know. Maybe everything is so automated that there wasn't even a projectionist and they just had to play whatever the next thing was that was queued up. But this was not an offensive movie, to me at least. Thematically, what's troubling about it is that the themes were exploring a difficult subject. And I think that's the point of art, right? You explore difficult subjects. It is a, is a place where you can explore difficult subjects. And Toronto was being overly sensitive to this controversy. Apparently, uh, I think even though there are no scenes of children being um, hurt, abused, uh, sexually violated, any of that kind of stuff, um, it does show them running around in their underwear. The guy basically opens a judo academy in the summer so that he can run around half naked with all these kids. That's the gist of it. Because he doesn't actually... That's, 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 the whole premise of, that's the whole premise of Cobra Kai. <laughs> anyway, the point being, it's ridiculous. And the, the, the festival has gotten... I mean, Canadians are famously polite and they're lovely, civilized people. Um, but I think there is a point at which too much is, 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 I mean, there's, there's just a limit to how 
sensitive and politically correct you can be about stuff. There's, you know, there's a movie that play there called The Inspection, which is a wonderful movie that A24 is releasing that's closing the New York Film Festival. Um, and the program said, warning, contains racism slash homophobia. So we're getting trigger warnings about conflict? Like what? At least they said sorry to you. Um, we're sorry. But if we can't explore these things, if are, are we not adults enough to see all this? This is a... This is clearly a, like an old subject and, and one that you guys have talked about a lot. Uh, you know, Warning sort of, contains you know, people raising their voices like mom and dad yeah, used like, what? to. What? <laughs> guys, come on. I, I'd like to see them have the courage of their convictions and follow through on some of the things they programmed instead of, you know, run scared and pull things out of an abundance of caution. And, and, and the thing is now that everything's so digital, especially the programming, there were no physical programs that were printed. So there's no trace of it actually being there. They can actually really disappear a movie very easily. This movie contains scenes that some people might find offensive for some reason. <laughs> Warning. Sorry. Anyway, Sorry. the takeaway I got from your two terrific uh, articles about the Toronto Film Festival is that this is going to be a, an excellent fall and winter season of movies, and there are lots of great things to see, and... The best thing about Toronto is that you, most of these movies find their way uh, to at least to your local art house, but a lot, some of these will be on, on you know, uh, in wide release as well. Uh, hopefully so. And and there there's a lot of really great. You're right. It, it looks like it's shaping up to be a really good fall uh, for movies. It's good. It's good. You know, I I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but movies have have kind of struggled <laughs> the last couple of years. <laughs> you know, I, don't know, I don't know if you're familiar with what's been going on, uh, but I. I, there are all these reports of, you know, we had a report from the Venice Film Festival as well, and all these reports, you know, the signs are signs are pointing toward the fact that people are still making movies and going to the movies, and really that's that's all that matters to me. What, what, what there seems to be a lack of, though, are big, dumb, broad comedies that are terrible. I want... Well, I tell you... I want more of those. I, I mentioned one in, in uh, my first piece, which is weird, the Weird Al Yankovic biopic, which is so stupid, it's brilliantly stupid, it is absolutely hilarious, and it was so fun to see with an audience. But that's um, only going to be on Roku. Roku. Original. I know, it's only going to be on Roku. It's heartbreaking. I hope the Alamo Drafthouse or somebody has, you know, nice little midnight movie screens of it or something. It, it deserves to be seen with a crowd, because it plays I'm so well. For sure they will, um, but I do have Roku, so... Um, I will be able to see that. Anyway, Stephen, we will talk at you soon. Thanks. All right. Thanks, Stephen. He travels the globe seeing films, so you don't have to. Actually, he's seeing films, so you have to see them. But he sees them first and gives you his impeccable critical perspective on them. So that's it for this week. I'm Neil Pollock. I'm the greatest living American writer. I'm the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and much more. We'll talk to you soon. Audio Hopper.